You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. Well, here's a question that I know you've thought about, I know we've talked about, but I think it's worth revisiting. And that is the question, what kind of church does our neighborhood need? Think about it. What kind of church does this neighborhood and this community need? Or maybe, to get more specific, what kind of Christian does this neighborhood need? What kind of Christian does your neighbor need? Think about your neighbors, right? Their faces and their names and their stories. If you were to stop and consider it for a moment, there are so many different types of churches and denominations and strands and styles and buildings and expressions of Christianity. There are so many ways of thinking about church, right? There's thousands of years and thousands of languages and thousands of cultures and thousands of iterations the Church of Jesus has gone through since its inception. And this is not to comment on any of them, but rather to ask yourself the question, what about now? What about right now? And unfortunately, I mean this, really unfortunately, most of us in this room can say what type of church we don't need. And most of us in this room can say what kind of Christian I don't want to be. And if I could be so pastoral, may I just encourage us, that is not helpful. It is not helpful. Most every people group in the history of the world, and most every Christian in the can tell you what kind they don't want to be. But it's always this comparison, and it's not a helpful exercise in anything except for growing bitterness and resentment towards every other kind of church and every other type of Christian. Instead, I think it's much more profitable and much more critical to ask and answer the question, what kind do we want to be? What kind do I want to be? The scripture to me is this vast landscape, and there are so many hills, and there are valleys, and there are turns, and there are unexpected surprises, very redemptive in places, and very dark in other places. It's the story of reality. It's beauty and ashes, it's hope and despair, it's gentleness and harshness, it's the sacrifice of someone and the selfishness of another. It is our story. And in this vast landscape, we stumble upon Romans 8. And to me, Romans 8 is the Mount Everest of the Bible. It is the highest pinnacle and the tallest peak that you could ever climb in the Scripture. And if I were to take one book of the Bible with me to an island, I would take John. And if I were to take one chapter of the Bible to an island, I would take Romans 8. It meets us on the bathroom floor of pain. And it gives us the expression of sheer It is the answer and medicine to the brokenness that we know internally, that we experience communally, and that we see externally. Now, there is is no way that we're going to work through this entire passage. It would be both impossible and foolish, but there is just so much gold in here. So really, there are two takeaways I want us to consider 
as we think about what type of church this neighborhood needs and what kind of Christian we want to be. The first is this, our community needs weak people settled in the love of God. Our community needs weak people settled in the love of God. The text doesn't say the Spirit helps us in our strength, nor is the Spirit impressed with us in our abilities. There is literally nothing spectacular about us to the one who breathed life. We are not wowing God. The text says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. See, our problem is twofold. We are either fooled by the illusion that we are not weak, or we despair in our weakness. All of us will fall into one of these two camps. Some of us are impressed with ourselves. Our life is together, our friends think we're hip, our parents think we've made it, we're part of something that's sort of slick, we make decent money, we care about things that society cares about, and if we're honest, we just don't need the Spirit of God in our lives. We're doing pretty good. I mean, we like to use Him to our advantage when we can. He is helpful in our name recognition, especially in the South, especially in the buckle of the Bible Belt. But to take God out of the picture would not completely alter our lives. We may make few adjustments. Maybe our, 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 our prayer life would probably take a back seat if it already isn't in the front seat. And we certainly wouldn't read the scripture. But otherwise, we'd still partake in table gossip. We'd still hoard a lot of our money and not really give much of our time. Our, our, sp- our internal life would certainly be, honestly, for a lot of us, still emotionally the same relatively unhealthy, a low hum of anxiety that is just roaming all the time. We don't need God. We are under the illusion that we run the show, even if it is totally unacceptable to say that out loud. Our issue is that we are functionally atheistic and we are ignorant of all the ways in which we need saving and healing. Or, what I think is probably more likely, We have just intentionally turned a blind eye to all the ways we need saving and healing because to look at all of our issues and all of our suffering and all of our past and all of our pain and all of our sin in the face requires a level of emotional vulnerability and openness to God and one another that asks way too much of us. We're just more comfortable not doing it. Or we despair. We are acutely aware of how weak we are, and we have learned to cope with it in unhelpful, unhealthy, and sinful ways. And unlike those under the illusion that we are doing just fine in the world, more of us are under the reality that the world is a crushing place, and it is crushing us. We know our sin. We meditate on it day and night. We know our suffering. It defines everything that we are. We know the pain of our childhood, and we're not sure if God is in the business of caring or redeeming. See, the one that is under the illusion of sheer fortitude and strength and charisma has not looked their reality in the face, 
And the one that is under the weight of despair and fear has yet to grab hold of the God who is attentive and active in interceding for them. Both parties have a belief issue. One party does not believe they are weak and thus is still stiff-arming the goodness of God to meet them in their weakness. And they have intentionally looked away from their sin and suffering and refused to address it. And the other party is despairing so much that they believe that this world really is all there is. And they functionally believe that God is against them. How could God be for them? They have made their sin and their suffering their God. And they are convinced, actually, that their sin and their suffering overwhelm the love of God. At the bottom of each of these is a matter of convictional belief. It is either we are too good for God or we are too bad for Him. We are either impressed with ourselves or we are impressed with our sin. I don't need God and God could never save me. Pride and pity is the paradigm. And God, like He normally does, completely disrupts it. It says in Romans 5, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus did not die for godly people. He died for ungodly, for nobodies, for failures and screw-ups and unimpressive men and women who cannot move past themselves. I love the line, while we were still weak. God has come for people who are at the end of their rope. He has come for people who are exhausted and burned out and weary. He has come for the brokenhearted, those broken by sin and broken over their sin. God will not shame you into repentance. He will love you into it. It is his kindness, not his anger, that leads to repentance. It is his gentle, loving, and gracious heart that leads us to him, not his irritated, ticked-off, made-up disposition. That is not the God of Yahweh who is slow to anger. It is the heart of the Father for you to come to him with anything that you believe will turn him away. That is his heart for you. Your sin is not impressive to God. In fact, some of us, I think, believe internally, if I bring this to God, he is going to have an insight and a watershed moment that says, oh my, I have never thought about that before. See, his death either makes us clean or it is nothing. There is no in-between. So bring your very ugly, very unimpressive sin to Jesus. He will not spurn you. He will do the opposite. We are the prodigal child, and he is the loving father. And we are the ones who are accepted into the house with a welcome party that is thrown by our dad after going out and spoiling everything he has given to us. And he is the gracious host, giving us a seat at the table, not as a hired hand, not as a servant, but as a child.
if you think about it long enough, it almost feels offensive. And as I consider our neighborhood and as I consider our community, they need followers of Jesus who are very aware of how frail and weak they are and secure in how loved they are. There is almost a settledness to it, not a settledness that leads to laziness or apathy, uh, but a settledness that leads to peace, security, and hope. Probably my favorite scripture in the entire Bible. So we have come to know and believe the love God has for us. My question is, have we? Have we? Do you? Do we? Do we know the love of God? Now, I'm not talking about facts about God or facts about the fact that God is loving. It is like the old, there's an old Jonathan Edwards uh, quote that talks about honey. And he says, there is a difference between knowing the ingredients that make up honey and tasting its sweetness. Have we tasted it? The Psalms that talk about tasting and seeing that the Lord is good is not just this metaphor. It is a reality of tasting the experience of the love of God. I fear, I, I genuinely fear, I fear it for myself, I fear it for this church, I fear it for the Southern Christendom, that we just know a lot about God. And we know about, a lot about God's love. But we've not been moved to do anything with it. The deep love of God, does it settle down your anxiety? Does it change your emotions? Does it wake you up out of the slumber of your lives? Have you ever thought on a Wednesday at 310, whoa, the love of God. The very deep love of God. And not just the past love of God, the, the present love of God. It says, in, continue on in Romans 8, 27, and he who searches hearts and knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That is the active intercession of the Spirit of God for the people of God. Does that not strike you? When it appears that evil is wreaking havoc in our world and suffering continues to permeate our bodies and the lives of those around us, even as evil is still very present in our day, in this neighborhood, we have this very strange resolve that God is bending the entire universe to his ultimate glory and our ultimate joy. I mean, look at the very next verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So we own our weakness. We acknowledge we have pain points in our lives and they are not pretty. We do not stuff our sin. We do not stuff our suffering. We look it in the face, actually, with an honest, refreshing look. And we bring it to Jesus. Our neighbors do not need people who have their lives together because our neighbors see right through that. They don't need impressive people. 
They don't need people who try and hide their unimpressiveness. What they need are honest neighbors who are settled and weak. They also don't need neighbors who are thinking about church differently. They don't even need Christians or Christian neighbors who make the Christian life seem normal or normalized. Christianity is weird. It's weird. Think about it, right? If you read the scriptures, it doesn't strike you at some point that this whole thing seems pretty wild. Then I'm not convinced we're reading it. Like our neighborhood needs Christians who have been absolutely overcome with the love of God so much so that they have reoriented their entire lives around this Middle Eastern Jewish teacher who defeated the thing we were all most scared of, death. And we believe, weirdly, we believe that he was killed by the Roman Empire, then got up three days later from the dead, appeared to more than 500 people, his body ascended into the sky, and he told us he was coming back on a white horse for us to turn a perfect garden into a, from, to turn a once perfect garden into a perfect city that now is a dry and weary wasteland. That's weird. It's just weird. Yes? Thank you. Okay, it's weird. And if our neighbors think it's strange, that's normal. That's normal. I'm not saying to go out intentionally be weird, okay? Be who you are. But I'm saying the story we're in is wildly unbelievable. And it must reorient our entire life. And do notice here, it's not saying that everything that happens to us is good, right? Cancer is not good. Alzheimer's is not good. Pornography is not good. Drunkenness is not good. happens to us is good, but rather that in God's goodness and His love, He is redeeming us and conforming us to the image of His Son. Our entire life is about this one statement, being conformed to the image of Jesus. That, is, that should be the banner that waves over your entire life. Our neighborhood needs weak people settled in the love of God. That's what it needs. And it also needs courageous people willing to do difficult things. If you read Romans 8, 31-39, the only realistic response is worship. And worship gets acted out in the everydayness of life. If you read 8.32, it says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What do you believe that you now need in your life that you already don't have in Jesus? There's probably something in your life that you feel like at some level you need. But let's read in 1 Corinthians 3, All things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Everyone. He has not skimmed some of you. In Jesus, you have ultimate security, unconditional love, an unthinkable destiny, unshakable hope, and actual peace. The God of the universe 
has hitched his wagon to Jesus, who has hitched his wagon to you. So now you are tied to the God of the universe forever. And I think, unfortunately, again, we've built a caricature of God that I don't believe is true. God is holy. Yes. God is righteous. Yes. God is perfect. Yes. God is good. Yes. But God is not up in the sky somewhere waiting to smoke you because his anger burns hot against you. It was, remember, we, the, the verse that all of us know in this entire room, whether you've been a Christian for a day or your entire life, is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn it but that the world might be saved through him. It does not say, for God so hated the world that he gave his only son. It doesn't say, for God sent his son into the world to condemn the world. It literally says the opposite. God sent out of love. God created out of love. God came out of love. And God desires, and it's difficult, I think, for a lot of us who have grown up in some types of evangelical circles, God does not desire that anyone should perish. That's the Bible. The Trinity is a circle of divine, self-giving love. And that love in Jesus has given us a new name that compels us and propels us to do very difficult things. See, courageous people in a community like ours do hard and risky things like we engage our literal neighbors in loving relationships for kingdom conversations. That means getting to know them, have them on your back porch, ask them engaging questions, listen to them, listen to their story, listen to their kid's story. That's hard. It's much easier to live the sort of stereotypical, what psychologists have called the suburban life, right? Garage door up, garage door down. That is a way of life. It is just not the way of Jesus. Secondly, we will do hard things like engage the intersection of prayer and mission. Someone once told me that prayer is not rocket science. It's much more difficult. That's why no one does it. And I'll confess, I fear that this may be the case because of my own leading of this church. And I don't want it to be true, but I don't want to be a church that's purely mission-minded and not actively engaging the Spirit of God in the work we're doing because it will be completely in vain. And I don't mean that prayer is this afterthought that we probably should do. I mean that it has to be the lifeblood of this church. Mission without prayer is like a car without gas. You've got the entire machine, the wheels are shining, the car is brand new, but it will not run. It just won't run. Courageous people ask God to do things that seem unthinkable. Why? Because we actually believe that he can do it. It's not a past relationship. It is a live relationship. Third, we engage in holistic, integrated faith, meaning Jesus has ultimate reign over every avenue of our life. Courageous people do not compartmentalize their life. It affects everything from your bank account 
to how you engage the world, to your politics, to the way you think about family, to your sexuality, to how you come alongside those who have been objectified, to your relationship with the thing in your pocket that has a grip on you. Everything. We will not back down or run away from any conversation because all of life comes under the authority and the orientation of the shortest, longest creed in the history of the church. Jesus is Lord. And last, we engage in honest, meaningful community. Meaning, if Romans 8 is true, and you have a new family that you are a part of as a follower of Jesus, then it is impeccable that our community reflect the fact that God has given us siblings. Which means that we share our very lives. The things going on internally, the things happening around us. We realize that small talk is good, but small talk does not keep us afloat. It cannot So we laugh together, we cry together, we're on mission together, we share with one another, we're honest with each other, we advocate one another. This is what family does. And some of us who have challenged or broken or perhaps unhealthy families have sort of launched all the things that are in our nuclear family onto the family of God. And so we've said, I don't want that in my family, so rather than actually engaging it, we completely withdraw from it. But the only way out is through. The only way that the family of God can be redeemed is in the family of God. And because we received the love of God, and because we are actively receiving the love of God, we are free. We're actually free to be in meaningful community with fellow brothers and fellow sisters. Because in the family of God, we find a safe community— We also find an honest community, and we find a trustworthy community. And to not be enfolded into the intimate relationships that make up the family of God is both disobedient and dangerous. That is what our neighborhood needs. It will cost us. Giving our life to the margins will cost us. Having people in our home consistently will cost us our schedule. Engaging in formation that is counter to how you grew up parsing through dialogue that is uncomfortable and exposing for you, that will cost us. Everything about following Jesus has a cost. Hence the catchphrase, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Pick up your instrument of death and follow me. And if Romans 8 is the Mount Everest, then Romans 8, 31 through 39 is the overlook. You have arrived at the top, and all you see is the vast expanse of glory and beauty and wonder, and you have no words. So you just sit in worshipful awe and reverence. What is the one thing that you don't do when you're on top of Mount Everest? You don't look at yourself. It's the one thing you don't do when you are staring over the Grand Canyon or any other vast piece of creation, the one thing you cannot do is look inwardly. It is impossible. It is anti-human. And so it is with the text of Romans 8. You realize how small you actually are and how wonderful Jesus actually is. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. 
who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So earlier we had the Spirit of God actively interceding for us. Now we have Jesus actively interceding to the Father on our behalf. The love of God is a three-chord strand, never broken. And I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Ravensbrück. It was the processing center for new arrivals in the German concentration camp during World War II for women. Elizabeth, known as Betsy Ten Boom and Cory Ten Boom, sisters, were held as prisoners in one of the most gruesome displays of evil over the last hundred years. And Cory describes the scene like this. From the punishment barracks all day long and often into the night came the sounds of hell itself. They were not the sounds of anger or of any human emotion, but of cruelty altogether detached. Blows landing in regular rhythm and screams keeping pace. We would stand at roll call in our ten deep ranks with our hands trembling at our sides, longing to jam them against our ears to make the sounds stop. It grew harder and harder. Even within these four walls of Barracks 8, there was too much misery, too much seemingly pointless suffering. And every day something else failed to make sense. Something else grew too heavy. Will you carry this too, Lord Jesus? was our constant question. Now, of the 130,000 incarcerated prisoners, only 40,000 survived the camp. It has been described as hell on earth. But then she writes this. But as the rest of the world grew stranger, one thing became increasingly clear, and that was the reason the two of us were here. Why others should suffer, we are not shown. As for us, from morning until lights out, whenever we were not in ranks for roll call, our Bible was the center of an ever-widening circle of help and hope. Like waifs clustered around a blazing fire, we gathered about it, holding out our hearts to its warmth and light. The blacker the night around us grew, the brighter and truer and more beautiful burned the word of God. Who shall separate us from the love of Jesus? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. I would look about us as Betsy read, watching the light leap from face to face, more than conquerors. It was not a wish, it was a fact. We knew it, we experienced it minute by minute. Poor, hated, hungry. We are more than conquerors, not we shall be more than conquerors, we are. Life in Ravensbrook took place on two levels. One was the observable external life, grew every day more horrible. The other, the life we lived with God, grew daily better. Truth upon truth, glory upon glory. There is just no way 
that someone in that situation could write those because they just intellectually taught them. They had to have experienced the love of God to say that out loud. It was true on that day in the 1940s, and it's true today on August the 8th. On one level, the world is self-destructing, blow after blow, evil upon evil. You can't unsee all of the mass and grotesque evil in the world. But on another level, the world is being put back together with the cross as the centerpiece and the people of God as the instrument, all the while the people of God are sobered by the sin in us and around us, but always overwhelmed by the love of God. I don't want this church to succeed in the way of ordinary success, but I do want pretty deeply for us to be captured by the love of God for it to come out of us, for us to actually engage him and experience him for all that he is worth. And out of that, we begin to image Jesus to the world. And when you have been overtaken by mercy and grace, both things withheld from you and things given to you, you are looking, hear me, you are looking for opportunities to become the answer to your own prayer. God, grant me the opportunity conversation and then take a bold risk with someone. God, grant me the opportunity to open up my home and then pick up the phone and make the call. God, grant me the discipline to walk in wholeness, then delete the apps on your phone. God, grant me a heart for those on the margins and then go serve a hot meal under the bridge for two hours for a whole year. God, grant me the community of siblings in Jesus and then step into actual vulnerability with a few of them. Here's the challenge. It's actually not complicated, but it's incredibly difficult. It's relatively simple and the hardest thing you'll ever do. Why? Why is that? Because all of us have to deal with what is going on in here. All of us. None of us go by unscathed. It will cost us everything, and we gain everything. Namely, we gain the person to whom our lives are all about. We are hungry for Jesus I believe our neighbors are hungry for Jesus and they're looking to be filled with other things and all they're finding is a salt stick and it just keeps making them thirstier and thirstier and thirstier. We have the bread of life. Let's give it to them. Let's pray. Jesus, we are weak and we collectively and individually own our weakness. But we are not defined by our weakness. We are defined by you and your love for us, namely on a cross 2,000 years ago. Give us eyes to see and ears to ear and a heart that is open to a God who would come for us. 
thank you for the privilege and the joy and the risk of following you. It is so difficult and you are so worth it. May we be people of love and people who do courageous things. Empower us with your Spirit and open up our own eyes to how the Spirit is already working in us and give us boldness to move further into the mission you have called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org. 